Oh, how precious is the flow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What a sweet, sweet hymn that we probably do not sing enough. Our Savior bled and died so that we could be made clean. Hallelujah. Let's go to our Lord once more this morning in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is holy, as we have sang about this morning. That you are a God who also loves us, so much so that your own Son bled and died to cover our sin. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who is also near in the hour of need. A God who is present in the midst of suffering and trials, sickness and death. God, we thank you for the ways that you have been with our body this week. Lord, as uh, two members uh, of our church or whether uh, members themselves or, or within our, our members' families have passed away this week. Lord, we continue to pray for uh, the Hall family as well as the Norville family, Lord, and in the loss of, of both Bill and Nellie. God, we ask that you will be with these families and continue to comfort them as they mourn the loss of their dear loved ones. God, we pray, Lord, for those who are uh, dealing with physical ailments and sickness even now, God, that you would be with them and strengthen them and heal them, and that you would be with their families as well. God, we thank you that we can lay these things at your feet, knowing that you are near and that you hear and answer. God, you are the God who is capable of healing all of these things. So we lay it at your feet this morning. God, we also want to pray for our sister church just down the road in Zion Hill Baptist Church. And uh, Lord, we pray for them as they are uh, in the process of looking for uh, their next pastor. And Lord, we pray, Lord, for uh, their interim, Ray Barnes, Lord, as he uh, shepherds and, and labors on behalf of that congregation now. God, be with him this morning as he steps up and opens your word. God, we pray that he uh, will be faithful as a messenger, and Lord, that your word would go forth in the midst of that congregation, building the saints up and strengthening them in Christ. Lord, we also want to pray for those around the world. This morning, we want to pray for the Mediterranean Turks, uh, Lord, those that are, are there upon the sea in Turkey. God, we pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work amongst the churches that are present there, that you will continue to uh, have churches that stand firm upon the gospel and preach Christ, that they will make much of him, strengthen these churches, give them uh, energy and diligence and boldness, Lord, as we know the government of Turkey does not want churches proclaiming a faithful gospel. God, we pray for missionaries there serving as well in Turkey amongst both the Turks and the Kurds. God, we pray for these brothers and sisters who are diligently uh, laying down their lives and uh, sacrificing so that people can know the gospel. Lord, we pray that you will give them uh, opportunities to come in contact with people even this week, Lord, uh, to share the gospel with them. Lord, as people gather uh, amongst uh, 
the different areas of the city and as they transport on buses and walk in the streets, Lord, that gospel opportunities would be there. And Lord, that they would be seized and that people would turn and believe in Jesus. God, we ask that you do this thing so that you may be worshiped and exalted. God, we also want to pray this morning on behalf of the Southern Baptist Convention as the executive committee uh, meets this week, handling various business of the Southern Baptist Convention. God, we pray, Lord, that the executive committee would do what is right and what messengers back in June affirmed and called for. We pray that they will be transparent in the light of uh, ongoing uh, sexual abuse scandals within the Southern Baptist Convention and her churches. God, we pray for this committee as they meet, Lord, that they would waive any rights that they have so that the truth can be made known, that we would be more concerned about the glory of your name than the old school members and what may come out against them. God, help us to honor you in that. Be with our brothers and sisters as they gather there in Nashville over the next few days so that you may be honored. And God, now as we come and turn to your word here, we pray much the same. We pray, oh God, that you would be with us, that you would have your word go forth and pierce our hearts, that it would not return void because you would do a work within us so that we may grow in our love for you and love for others. God, would you move this morning? We ask and we pray all of this in the name of Christ our King. Amen. Growing up in sports and growing up in a family that was military brat influenced, as my dad was a military brat, excellence was talked about all of the time doing things with excellence, whether it being grades or sports. If I didn't uh, make a wrestling move fast enough, I was in trouble. If I didn't have A's and B's, I was in trouble. Uh, excellency was demanded. You know, it's interesting all the ways that we define excellency and, and greatness within our world. We define greatness by how much money we have, what type of, of job and standing in society that we have. We define greatness by what kind of influence we have. Uh, I know different family members, uh, even within Darcy's and my own family, have asked, what kind of significance do you have in your job? That's how society in the world defines greatness. But the question is, how does the Bible define greatness? How does being followers of Christ define greatness? And that's what I want us to look at this morning as we open back up in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and, and open up there. Uh, while you're opening up and turning to Mark 9, 30, uh, just a, a recap of where we've been in Mark. Mark is the brief, uh, shortest of the Gospels. It, it is secondhand information coming from Peter. John Mark is recording what he has learned from Peter and telling others of it so that we today can know what the disciples went through there in his day and time. Yet as he, he writes this letter, he starts out in Mark 1 through 8, having an emphasis on Jesus's outer ministry towards those in Israel. 
But now shifting from about 827 on, Jesus begins to have a more focused ministry on that of his disciples. A small group of 12, Jesus is going to focus the rest of his ministry on these 12s. Yes, he'll have different interactions still with the scribes and Pharisees. He'll have his trial. But mostly all of his teaching is done with these 12, pouring into them, teaching them, here's what it means to be a disciple. And that's what we jump right back into this morning here in Mark 9.30. So let's open God's Word and read, beginning in Mark 9.30 through the end of the chapter. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him, Who is? Uh, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where there weren't where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. If I've understood this text rightly, here's the main point. And again, if I'm doing this whole preaching thing rightly, the main point of the sermon is this. If you are to be great in the kingdom of God, Christian, you must first learn to follow Christ and his example of being a servant. Let me repeat that. If you're going to write anything down, write this, please. If you are to be great in the kingdom of God, Christian, you must first learn to follow Christ and his example of being a servant. We're going to unfold this in four points. Point number one, the suffering servant king. Point number two, the great serve all. Point number three, the great 
don't compete. And point number four, the great kill sin and help others to kill sin. Point number one, the suffering servant king. Jesus has already been revealed as the Messiah. Peter did this back in, in chapter 8, verse 27. He confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. In other words, he's the one that God had promised from long ago would come. He was the one to come and be David's son and David's Lord from Psalm 110. He is the one that is promised to sit on David's throne forever and ever. These are the promises that were made of the Messiah. And Jesus is the Messiah. He's come to do these things. And he's trying to teach his disciples what this means. What does it mean for him to be the Messiah? They think of him as, as nothing more than a great royal king who comes in with sword and, and sitting on a, a nice horse and, and conquers in battle, defeating with no problems. That's the kind of greatness the disciples in the world expects. To be honest, it's the kind of king we would have been looking for if we were on that side of the cross. And yet, Jesus makes clear, this is not who he is. Yes, he's going to have victory. He's going to be the Messiah king. But it's going to come a lot different Notice the title he uses here in, in teaching his disciples. It says, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man title is a title that has multiple meanings. Son of Man is used throughout the Old Testament in ways of simply referring to mankind, human being. We are the sons and daughters of man. We were born of flesh. That's one meaning of it. But as we dive into Daniel and Ezekiel, they begin to use this more tightly in how they use it. Ladies, you just spent uh, months studying through Daniel. The Son of Man is more than just somebody born of humankind. It's one who's come to crush and sit with God for all eternity. He's going to be seated with God forever and ever and judge the earth with him. That's what the Son of Man means in Daniel. And that's who Jesus is saying, here, I'm the Son of Man. I'm coming to do these things. So I'm both going to be that of, of mankind. So I'm going to be both man and God. I'm going to conquer, but I'm also that of the suffering servant. I'm the suffering servant long promised in Isaiah 52 verses 13 through Isaiah 53 verse 12. The one who is going to come and to suffer and die in order for sheep to be cleansed. For their, my blood to wash away their sins. For me to bear their transgressions. That's what this idea of Son of Man is, is referring to. Jesus is coming to do these things for us. But notice what it goes on to say. The Son of Man is going, there in verse 31, is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise so not only does Jesus come and lay out that he is the son of man, but he is going to be delivered, handed over into the hands of men. Now, if we know our Bibles, we know what's coming. 
Judas is going to betray Jesus and hand him over to the scribes and the Pharisees. But as Lee Corso would say, not so fast on it being Judas that is the one that is being talked about, about handing Jesus over. Judas will in part. He will be the physical means that is used here. But more importantly, it's about God delivering his own son into the hands of men as the son of man. Why is this so crucial? Well, in Isaiah 53, 10, we read, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's crucial to see that God is the one who delivers the son over into the hands of man because God has his pleasure in crushing the son so that we can be delivered and saved. The disciples kept wanting to miss the cross. Brothers and sisters, we can't miss the cross. If Jesus came as some ordinary king and was seated on a throne by conquering, as he sat on his horse and his armies invaded Jerusalem and they took it over, no suffering servant would have come. No deliverance of sin would have come. Yes, Israel may have been free. They may be still free today, but they would have still been in bondage to sin. It's the will of the Lord to crush the Son in order to satisfy wrath against sin. The cross is essential to the Christian faith. Too often we decorated it as a decoration and, and kind of think of it as some beautiful thing. And yet again, the cross is shameful. It is something of torture and death. And this is what Jesus is teaching his disciples, trying to teach them here now for the second time. This must take place. This has to come. This is the whole reason I came. It's not to just simply give you political freedom here in Israel. As much as you want that, it's not what you desperately need. Jesus came as the Son of Man with his eyes set toward the cross. It was for this reason Jesus didn't go in glory when he was transformed there on the mountain with the three. He came back down because this was his mission to go to the cross, to suffer and die, to be delivered into the hands of men. Why? So that he could serve us. So that he could rescue us. How precious is the blood which flows from the cross in order to save us. Jesus, the suffering servant, has come. Yes, he will conquer. But he bled and died for our sake. Brothers and sisters, the disciples struggle to grasp Jesus as the suffering servant. We cannot make that same mistake. Too often we want to sing of God's love and miss that of God's judgment against sin, his holy wrath against it. Too often we miss the cross. We want to go blazing right past it. We must understand the essential of the cross or we too will miss who Jesus really was and why he really came. We can never learn what it means to follow him unless we understand this. Jesus came 
as the suffering servant. He was the one, the man of sorrows, who bore our shame and was condemned in our place. He is the one who will rise again and be exalted on high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. If you've never sung or read or listened to that hymn, I encourage you to go and do that this afternoon. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Jesus was a man of sorrows as he suffered to serve us. Christian, let us behold our King, our suffering King, who has loved us and served us in this way. Because we need to see this in order of what he calls us to. And seeing that he's the suffering servant, let us turn our, our attention to the, the second point that Jesus or the great serve all. If we don't understand that Jesus came to serve, we can never begin to serve others. We can never begin to serve one another rightly. Because unless we see Jesus came to serve as the suffering servant, we are going to want to only serve those in our own cliques. We're going to only want to serve those who are like us in our same age bracket or in our same gender or whatever we want to put in there. Instead of serving others selflessly, serving all selflessly. We see this play out. Look in verse 33 with me. It says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? They had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Here Jesus has just taught the disciples for the second time, I, the Son of Man, am going to be, suffer and be handed over and delivered to death. And then I'm going to rise again. And yet on the way, they began to argue, to discuss among themselves, who's the greatest among us? The 12 of us are here. Who's the greatest of us? You know, we're Jesus' closest followers. One of us has to be the greatest, but who? <laughs> oh, foolish disciples. Oh, foolish us. How often do we take that same approach to try and be great in the kingdom, to prove our worth and our value? And thinking that we have something to boast in of ourselves. That's not what mattered. Look what Jesus responds with. He doesn't get angry. He, he shows his patience. But he says in verse 35, And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. You know, the movie Talladega Nights, Ricky Bobby, has this saying, if you're not first, you're last. If you've never seen the movie, he was a, a race car driver, and he's all about winning, and the thought of even being second is last to him. So culturally, again, we see this idea of to be first is what matters. That defines greatness. Never mind integrity, never mind the, how you get that first place. But Jesus says to be greatest, to be first, we must be last. We must be servant of all. Brothers and sisters, how many of you think about being great in the kingdom of God and comparing it to your service, to serving all, to serving others? 
As that third song we sang this morning, oh, how good it is. Thinking about preferring one another and caring for one another. This is what is being called of us as Christians. Not in order for us to earn our salvation, but in light of what Christ has done for us. We who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, who have been served by his death and resurrection, are to be a new people of God, zealous to serve others as Christ first served us us. And brothers and sisters, there's many ways we can do this. We can do this one in our own church body. And then we can also do this outside of these walls with the lost around us. I want to look at first at the church and amongst ourselves, and then we'll look at, at the outside world and how we serve others. Brothers and sisters, every Christian, every born again Christian is called to serve one another. There is no exception. We are all called to serve each other, and particularly in carrying out the one another's of Scripture within the confines of this local church. We have a responsibility to care for one another in these different ways. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. We care for one another in these practical ways. Sisters, many of you this week stepped in huge big time, in serving others in the midst of loved ones dying. You stepped in to serve the family's meals. Thank you. Thank you for serving others this way, in particular those in our church body as well as their families. Many of you serve in nursery and or previously have in, in these variety of ways. Some of you serve in music, others in, in doing the behind-the-scenes stuff that no one ever recognizes. Thank you. These are ways we serve one another, and these are all to be commended. But there's also ways in which we can continue to be challenged and grow in our serving and loving one another. And it's not going to seem like that, but one of those is simply by being present with one another. Brothers and sisters, if you are, are always hanging out with just the same groups of people, I want to encourage you, make it a habit after the service not to go to the ones you're going to see middle of the week in your various Bible studies. Go and find somebody you never spend time with after every service and rotate through until you have spent time with every member of this church in some strategic way. Talking with them, getting to know them, Learning how we can simply care for one another, pray for one another, simply listening to one another. Brothers, how are we to serve one another if we don't interact with one another in more strategic ways? We interact well in our little cliques, but let us get outside those cliques and interact with those that we normally don't. This is how we serve one another. This is how we love one another in the Christian life, in particular in the church. This is how we carry out the one another's together in our church body. But it's not just the members that are called to this. In particular, it's the leaders within the church who are called to these things. Brothers or sisters, if you have any kind of leadership position, recognize this is a call on our lives to model this first and foremost. There's a term called servant leadership that should mark those leaders within the church to be all about modeling this example of serving and laying down our lives for each other. The term deacons is the same term that we see here used in serve. 
The whole role of deacons is to serve the body, to serve one another. So let us as members, especially that as leaders, deacon one another, serve one another. This is the way we're to model and set forth. And it's not just because we're in leadership. Again, this is to mark every Christian. Brothers and sisters, if you ever aspire to church leadership, you can't just say, you know what, when I get that title, I'll begin to serve. No. The serving others, the serving the body of Christ is to mark our lives before a title is ever given. One of the things that marked me out before ever entering ministry was serving the church. I served in nursery. I served in uh, anytime things were asked to be moved or, or whatever. Served in, in bringing meals. Served in, in all these different ways as a single man. And did that. And the first time I entered ministry, it was kind of like, wow, I'm actually getting paid to do these things. It, it was a mark of my life. In fact, our, our pastor at the time challenged us because we were in a seminary town and many of us aspiring to church leadership. He said, some of you brothers want to get behind the pulpit and preach, but unless you're willing to serve in the nursery now, don't ever dare pursue pastoral ministry because you're not willing to serve the body. You're only looking out for you and glory. Brothers and sisters, Leaders are called to be servant leaders, not to seek leadership out of title and position and power, but because they've already began serving one another. And therefore, they continue to do so and are then invited in and saying, you know what? You serve well. Why don't you be at the forefront and help lead in this way? Lead in serving our body. Lead us in godliness. These are the things that mark the church in both members and leaders. And these need to mark us, Central City Baptist. Let us be a people that labors faithfully, that continues to grow in this. Again, we have many things to be commended of. I don't want us to, to walk away feeling like we don't do any of these. We do well in serving one another, in particular of care of one another and meals and various things like that. But we can also have plenty of room for us to continue to grow. And that's what I want to challenge us this morning. Let us grow in this kind of service for one another. But then there are those outside the church over the last few months, we've had opportunities to partner with the KBA and, and serve families over at the Central City Grade School and in providing meals for, for these various families. This is one way of doing mercy ministry, uh, of serving those outside the church and in need. And these ways are, are again, I, I commend us, I applaud us for those that have pitched in to help serve in these various ways. These are ways that we continue to serve others. But maybe you're, you're not called to that type of ministry. Maybe some of you ladies are, are called to go and partner down with a pregnancy care clinic and, and serve in that way and, and be a counselor with some of these unwed mothers who are having children in desperate need of help. Maybe they're wrestling through whether or not to have an abortion and you can be the means of serving them in that way. Go and serve in these different ways and, and care for others. Go and serve others in these various mercy ministries. Go and serve down at the food pantry. Go and serve our community in these ways.
others. Maybe you love politics. Maybe instead of being so consumed in the political discussion of watching Fox News and CNN all the time or, or whatever means of, of expressing that, go get involved in city council. Brothers and sisters, one of the greatest ways we can, as Christians, serve the good of our community is to go and be a part of the decision-making of that community. Go and labor and use that time to be able to invest in relationships and, and fight for right gospel change within our community. Making those decisions and, and helping others come alongside. Here's what it means to, to do things well with excellence. Here's what it means for us to, to labor and get jobs in for our community. You see the benefit. These are ways we serve others outside in non-practical ways or, or practical ways that we often don't think about. How do we serve others around us? By being involved and working for the good of our community. This is exactly what Israel was called to do while they were in exile. And Christian, it's what we are called to do as well as we serve all people around us. But most importantly, the way we serve others is by hitting on the biggest need. Brothers and sisters, no matter how often we do mercy ministries, no matter how many good things we do within our community, if we are not sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are not hitting the biggest need of the lost and dying world. Unless we are sharing the gospel, we are not hitting someone's biggest need. We can give them all the bread they want, their bellies might be full, but their souls will be dying and perishing. Charles Spurgeon said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Christian, our greatest way of serving others is by taking them the gospel. For it is this very gospel in which we hear week in and week out that Christ has died for our sins and rose again in order to save us and defeat death that we have, and yet people are perishing around us. We cannot just simply toss bread to them and expect it to save them from the drowning waters of death and sin. We must toss the life raft of the gospel. We must use words and have lives that echo those words. We can't presume that somebody can watch our lives and be saved because every gospel conversation, every gospel presentation demands hearing of the gospel. As Romans talks about how beautiful are the feet of those who go and take the gospel. Brothers and sisters, will we meet the biggest need of Central City and Centralia of taking the gospel to a lost and perishing people who need Jesus? Let's go and serve our community in this way. But likewise, not only do the great serve all people, those that are different than them, those that are, are in various uh, means, uh, even what Jesus says here uh, in calling the, the child and taking him and putting him in his arms and saying, whoever receives one such child on my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is a call to serve all people. What does this all mean? 
A child in, in the Israelite culture and in most of the world's culture is not seen as a priority at the top of the totem pole. They're seen down here at the bottom. Right or wrong, they're seen at the bottom as far as societal concerns and demands. It's typically in most of the world's culture, start with the men, then the wife, then the servants, then way down here, the children, and how priority is set up. But Jesus says, Doesn't ju don't just go and serve those at the top of the pole. Go and serve all from the lowest up. Go and serve all. Those that are different, those that are the least of these, go and serve them all. That's who we're being called to serve. Brothers and sisters, too often we want to go after those that we would like to see in the church. And, and that's who, you know what? That person over there looks, they look a little rough. I don't think they would accept the gospel. Who are we to, to make that choice? Let us go and serve all people in taking the gospel. Let's go and serve all in caring for needs. Let's love as Christ loved us. Because, brothers and sisters, I promise you, if Jesus, which he did, looked at our hearts and chose how some of us choose who we're going to share the gospel with, he would have never dared share the gospel with us. Thank God our Savior did not do such impartiality. He served all by shedding his blood on the cross that, so that we could be saved. In that light, let us go and serve all people. But not only do we serve all people, we're called to not compete against those that are for Christ. Drop down with me in verse 38 and following. It says, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. What in the world? Who is this against and who is this for? Well, Dr. Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, has a, a helpful explanation on how to discern this. He, he labels it theological triage, looking at it this in three levels. He takes us at the first level being that of crucial, level two is the next importance, and level three being at the bottom. And I'll tie this in to help make all sense of it. But as he looks at this level one triage, it's gospel truth. So level one, we, we have to determine, is this triage in the sense of, is the gospel being forsaken? Those that hold to a biblical gospel are for Jesus because they believe Jesus is the way, the truth of the life. They believe that Jesus is the son of God who was both fully man and fully God and came to die on the cross. They believe that he was raised. Those that affirm this biblical gospel are those that are for Jesus. However, those that deny this gospel in any shape and form, they may call themselves Christian, but they deny the teachings of Jesus and therefore do not follow Christ, which Christian means follower of Christ. They are against Jesus. 
That's how we tell who is for and against Jesus. Do they affirm the biblical gospel? Do they believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father apart from him? Do they believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead? These are the things of biblical gospel that are of the first importance. This is what at stake. Now, if that would have been the case in, in what was going on with these others, Jesus would have said, yes, they're not for us. They're denying me. But he's saying, they can't do these works in my name and be those that deny me. That's far from it. So brothers and sisters, there is a time in those that call themselves Christians that we do say, you're against Jesus because you deny him, you deny the biblical truth of his gospel. Therefore, no, you're not with us. You are against us. But more of the time, it's what we see in level two and level three of differences. One way to help us understand level two is that of looking at our different denominations. I'm convictionally Baptist, brothers and sisters. A few years ago, I tried to apply for a church. It, it made it seem like it was a non-denominational church. Well, in my where I grew up in, in East Tennessee, non-denominational simply means Baptistic in, in practice, but not Baptist in name. You don't want to be tied to it. So that's what it meant to be non-denominational. Well, it's what you get in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, assuming the same things transition over. Uh, the, the church was uh, very Presbyterian in, in their structure. They believed in infant baptism, which me, convictionally Baptist, I could not affirm. I could not be a part of that. And it quickly came to truth. Me and this brother, we had an encouraging conversation, but we both quickly realized, I can't go to work for this church because I hold to baptism being by the mode of immersion for believers and not for that of infants and sprinkling. This level two makes these strong distinctions that that are rightly there, and that's why we have our various denominations, that we have different practices, different understanding that, you know, we can partner with them for gospel ministry. We can even do a, a gathering every once in a while, but we're not going to sit in the same pews every week because we don't agree on these, these things that are essential to be a church together. That's what level two is. But often it's here at level two that we begin to say, you know what? You, you're not of us. You're not following the same thing, so you're not Christian. And that's far from the case. We need to see that part of being Christian means, yes, we're going to have differences. Our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, they need to get their baptism right. And I, I tell my Presbyterian brothers and sisters and friends this same thing. They need to get their baptism right. But they're dear saints. We need to see that we're not in competition with one another. We don't have to have the very basic understanding of those differences and all align. And that's okay. It may not mean we belong to the same church, but we can all still call each other brother and sister in Christ because they're not our enemy. They're not our competition. The disciples struggled to see that kind of thing because this, this other group didn't follow them. They didn't follow the same things. And yet it, it was made clear that they had to have some kind of faith in Jesus because otherwise they couldn't do these works. They couldn't operate working in his name. 
And the third level of triage, which is far less significant, is that of, of other differences within our congregations. One of these in, in primary is that of eschatology. I'm not going to tip my hand here because Mark's going to take us to eschatology, which is the end times. We're going to look in that. But brothers and sisters, it's okay for us to be in the same church, belonging to the same congregation, and have differing opinions on this if we respect one another through it. And we should because this is not an, an essential matter. It's something that we can have our different thoughts and should think through, but that we can partner together in week in and week out of serving one another. Now, why do, do I go into all of this? Because we need to see that those who are not against us are for us. Namely, those that affirm a biblical gospel are for us and for our Savior. It's when they deny that, that they become against. Let us be more discerning. Let us have a greater love for those that we disagree with, even within the church, and care for one another. And let that extend for the glory of Christ. Because we need to see that we are all laboring together for the name of our Lord Jesus. But finally, we come to our fourth and final point this morning. The need to help kill sin in our lives and others. The great kill sin and help others do likewise. There in verse 41, we read, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Serving is a great means of caring for one another, but one of the most practical ways comes in what follows in verse 42, which says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. To cause another to sin, to stumble, to trip them up. Think back at, childhood, how many of us, especially the men in the church, would go and, and love to stick our leg out as somebody was coming by the desk in order to watch them trip and fall? Women, maybe some of you did it. I see smirks on your face as well. How many of us do that in the Christian life? That's what Jesus is dealing with. Those that stick their leg out to trip those that are, are weaker and, and less mature or, or baby Christians and lead them to sin, it's better that they had a large rock hung around their neck and cast into the sea than to cause one to stumble. Brothers and sisters, part of our discipleship process is that when we see new and baby Christians come to faith, we link our arms around them so tightly. We walk with them through and through, strengthening them, encouraging them, bearing patience with them. When a new Christian sits there and uses a profanity word that they've used for decades, we don't go and immediately say, shame on you, you're no longer acting like a Christian. No, we patiently endure and teach them, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It looks like this. And I'm going to walk with you and strengthen you. 
I'm not going to discourage you. I'm not going to push you away because you don't have it together. Neither did I in the early days of my faith. But oh, how quick we forget that. Brothers and sisters, as we want people to come to faith, we better be ready to walk with them in their infant stages of that faith. They're going to be like the two and three-year-old that's questioning everything, wanting to know, can baby sister, when they arrive, eat watermelon? No, not right off the bat. But that's not how we often do discipleship. We need to be patient. We need to strengthen and not cause them to sin, not cause them to fall away because they think they're not good enough. We strengthen them over and over by reminding them, you are in Christ. You have been saved and you are one with him. Therefore, all the blessings of heaven are yours. Keep fighting. Follow me as I follow Jesus. This is what it means to not cause others to sin. We help them. But also, likewise, we see in verses 43 through 48, I, for the sake of time, not going to reread through these. But if you notice in these verses, there, there's a repetitiveness. If this, if this, if this, three times calling out the seriousness of sin. It's better to enter life maimed than it is to enter death whole. Brothers and sisters, not only are we to help others in fighting against sin and not causing them to stumble, we're to be killing sin in our own lives. To be great in the kingdom is to kill sin. John Owen, uh, an English Puritan, said this. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. As followers of Christ, we must be killing sin within us. If we allow sin to manifest, it's going to fester and stew. Kind of think of that mouse that gets in your air vents and dies and just that stench begins to spew out of the air vents. That's what happens when we allow sin to manifest itself in us instead of killing it. Because it just festers and stews and all sorts of evil and vileness begins to seep out. We need to see the seriousness of our sin, and be killing it. Because Christ did not come to die on the cross in order for us to stay in our sin. He came to free us from that sin and not for us then to say, oh, I'm going to go and sin more so that grace abound by no means. To come and to follow Christ is a call to kill sin. Ongoing. And even as we struggle in that fight against sin to continue rising up over and over again as we reset our eyes on Jesus, seeing what he has already done for us and saying, I want to be with you. So I'm going to keep killing this sin. You are more worthy than sin and whatever desires I have. Let me desire more of you. Christian, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be pits. There's going to be sticky spots in which we find ourselves in the Christian life. And that's okay. But we should be able to look back over the past of our Christian walk and see progress. We should see progress as we look backward seeing that we're growing in areas. We may still be having uh, one sin that we're struggling with over and over again, but we're ongoing fighting it. But the danger is when we stop that fighting, when we stop trying to fight and kill sin. 
or even worse, when we look back and we see no change since we profess Christ. Some of you, if you're in here this morning and you look back and you see no change since the time you professed Jesus, wake up. The reality may be you never came to faith in Christ because Christ does not leave us unchanged. Repent and believe in Jesus because Jesus changes lives. He does not leave us where we're at. We must be changed by the power of the gospel. Why? Why does all this matter? Let me sum it up here in verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Brothers and sisters, each and every one of us are going to go through fire the fire of trials, the fire of suffering, the fire of temptation. We're going to be drugged through it. The question is, what comes through it? Are we going to come through purified? Are we going to come through more maimed than before? That's the end goal here. The end goal is to be preserved in salt. To be salt preserves things. It, it makes meat last. Keep in mind, in ancient culture, salt was a treasure. Now all of our doctors tell us not to eat a ton of salt on our meals. But in, in the ancient world, salt would have been life and death as far as preserving food because it's you didn't have refrigeration. Some of you can think back before some of you had the refrigerators and different things. We are preserved as we kill sin. We're preserved as we keep our eyes on Jesus. We're preserved as we go through this fire and keep trusting in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we need to see our need to be salt, to go through the fire and be refined. Keep being made more like Christ in our sanctification, that is, to being made more like him and sinlessness, and righteousness, and serving and loving others. Brothers and sisters, let us look to the cross, seeing that Christ came to suffer and die in order to preserve us. Therefore, all the trials of life that we go through are a means of taking us through the fire and refining us. And as we go on this journey, as the mere or the uh, pits lie there and and the sticky points come let us keep fighting by keeping our eyes on Jesus and what he has already done for us in Christ and friend if you are here this morning and you have not believed in this truth that Christ came to die and to rise again make today the day you believe let's pray heavenly father we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. God, we pray that we will be a people that go and serve others, that we will be faithful to tell others the good news of Jesus. God, help us to do this task. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.